Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In June 2020, Gartha Colum Horkin was shot and killed while on duty in Castlereagh County, Roscommon. His murder shocked the community and his colleagues in the force. Another member has now made the ultimate sacrifice uh, in the course of their duty. To think that a colleague goes out to work on an evening and doesn't return home to their families. Last week, Stephen Silver of Foxford County Mayo was convicted of Gartha Horkin's murder after two trials where jurors had to decide if Silver's mental health was an excuse for his crime. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Aideen Finnegan. Today, what happened at the trials of Stephen Silver? Owen Reynolds, court reporter, you have a a long read on irishtimes.com, which really goes through the events leading up to the murder of Gartha Colum Horkin by Stephen Silver in Castlereagh in County Roscommon and, you know, really delves into the background. You you open with him being hyper by the time he got to Castlereagh on the night of the 17th of June 2020. Maybe you might bring us through the events there. He, he was living in his motorbike shed in Foxford, County Mayo. So why was he even in Castlereagh that night? I think the background to it really is key to what happened here. He is a married man, um, but he had left the family home the previous February. And as you say, he had ended up living in a shed that he had built himself, actually, and he used it to fix motorbikes. And he converted one corner of the shed into a kind of a a fairly basic living quarter. He had a bed in it. He had an unplumbed sink and he said that he would get a large bottle, go outside to a hose. He'd fill up the bottle with water, bring it back inside and then wash himself in that sink with a bucket underneath to collect the water and then throw that out. It was a warm summer, so he wasn't too worried about not having central heating. But these were the conditions in which he was living at that time, which is definitely suboptimal, you would say. He had spent the previous couple of days with an Australian woman who he had met over the course of that year. This was in the middle of COVID as well, so there had been lockdowns. Uh, life was a little bit more difficult, especially for somebody who, who was in Ireland on a visa. So she had decided she was going to go back home to Australia and they decided to spend their last couple of days together. And he drove her to Dublin and they, they were to spend a couple of nights in a hotel there. And according to his version of events... This was when his mind started to wander a little bit. Now, he has multiple previous diagnoses of bipolar disorder, but it's important to remember that the jury did not accept that he was in the throes of a relapse of his mental disorder at the time that he killed Garda Horkin. But I think it's still worthwhile to give his version of events as to what happened in these days. 
after a day with this woman in Dublin at a hotel in Dublin, he started to change his mind and he didn't want to be with her anymore. And he said that he started having these fleeting thoughts that she was actually a member of MI5 and that she might even be trying to kill him. He believed that some English builders that he saw in the same hotel might be members of the SAS who are also in cahoots with this Australian lady. Their relationship, it seems, fell apart at that stage and he left the hotel. They left on bad terms, separated on bad terms. Uh, and he headed back towards his home in Foxford. But he just decided, he said along the way, that he was going to pop into Castlereagh. He didn't really give any reason. He said that he was feeling quite elated at that point. He had the radio on, he was playing Motorhead uh, up full volume. And he was feeling pretty good about himself. He was feeling that he had, you know, sent this uh, MI5 agent off on a mission. You know, these were the kind of thoughts that he said were going through his head. And so he stopped into Castlereagh, I suppose, just to see what was going on. And the first person he met was a, an old friend of his named Derek Mannion. He pulled in beside Derek Mannion and Derek told him, showed him a video actually on his mobile phone of an encounter that a, a mutual acquaintance of theirs had had, a man by the name of James Coyne, whose house had been raided by armed guardie a couple of weeks earlier. So Stephen Silver, having watched this, seems to have decided that this was out of order, what the Gardaí had done in this case. And even though he hadn't seen James Coyne in something like 13 years, he decided to pay his old friend a visit. And that's how he found himself in that area of Knock Row, because that's Knock Row is where these things kind of kick off. And that's where James Coyne lived. So he calls over to James Coyne's house at that point. That's on the afternoon of the day when this happened. Obviously, the significant events happened much later that evening. His psychiatric history, I, I believe he'd kind of been hospitalised multiple times over the course of 17 years. And he had, as I said, this diagnosis of bipolar disorder. You know, that's not really in dispute. There were two psychiatrists who gave evidence in this case, and they disputed the, the effect that his disorder was having on him at the specific time of the offence. But nobody was disputing that he had this prior history of bipolar disorder. Um, and he, of course, was claiming that he was going into a full relapse of his bipolar disorder by the time he arrived in Knock Row that afternoon. How did it escalate, Owen? From Knock Row, when Stephen Silver arrived there and spoke to his friend, he said that uh, he became a little bit upset at the squalor that James Coyne was living in. And so he decided that they would go to his garage in Foxford. So they got into his van, they went to Foxford. When they were there, they took out one of his motorbikes, a Kawasaki bike that he had, and he gave James Coyne a spin on it. And according to both men, at some point, Stephen Silver said, turned to James Coyne and said, you're a natural on that bike, you can keep it. So he, he gave away this bike. Again, he claimed that this was evidence of his deteriorating mental health because he says that bike, hey, he'd been working on it for years and it was worth thousands of euros at a time when he had about 300 euros in the bank. So anyway, he decided he was going to give this bike to James Coyne. So they loaded it into the back of Stephen Silver's van and they drove back to Knock Row. And when they got back to Knock Row, this is now much later on in the evening. The two men started driving this bike around the estate at high speed, attracting a lot of attention from uh, the residents who were li also living in the estate in the neighbouring houses. They were driving it without a light, with no helmets. And at the end of it, Stephen Silver started doing burnouts on the back tyre, essentially creating a huge thick plume of smoke. So the Neighbours called the Gardaí and I suppose by doing that, they unwittingly summoned the encounter that would result in Gerda Hawken being killed. Very shortly after Stephen uh, Silver and James Coyne put the bike away, when Gerda Hawken arrived in an unmarked Hyundai Garda car, 
Um, and he had a little drive around the estate. Obviously, he saw that there was nothing happening at that point, and so he drove on. But he still had his eyes open, and he was still looking out for the people who had caused this disturbance. Stephen Silver and James Coyne were walking on the main street of uh, Castlereagh, where it joins with Patrick Street. People who are familiar with the town will know what I'm talking about. It was as they were approaching or at that junction that Stephen Silver said that he noticed a car, this is the unmarked Hyundai car driven by Gerda Hawken, pull up behind him with the passenger side window down. And he said the person driving the car, who he didn't know at the time, but we know is Gerda Hawken, shouted out at him. So he said he stooped down to the window to speak in, to see, to speak in, see who this person was. And he said the person asked him who he was. He said he gave his name and he asked, who are you? And the response he got was that I'm a Garda. And he said that Garda Corkin was at that point getting out of the car. He said there was an encounter where Stephen Silver said that he tried to keep Gerda Horkin back two metres by extending his hands out towards him. He said to stay back two metres as per the kind of COVID protocols. Um, and then uh, he said that Gerda Horkin said he was going to arrest him and tried to grab him by the hands. Now, obviously, you, ha- you cannot... The only account we really have of what happened there is from Stephen Silver. James Coyne gave an account as well, but his memory was not particularly good on what had happened. And we can't take everything that Stephen Silver said as being true. You know, we do know that in parts of his testimony, he was definitely less than forthcoming with the truth. Um, but uh, that is the account that he gave in respect of what happened with Garda Horkin. He said they started grappling, that Garda Horkin tried to grab him, you know, got into a fight. And he said that he felt himself falling down to the ground and he tried to pick himself back up by grabbing on to Garda Hawkins' waist. And he said that as he did that, he got hold of Garda Hawkins' gun. And re- that was, he said that that was the first time he realised that this person had a gun. And then it became a kind of a struggle for the gun. They both had their hands on the gun. They were both struggling for it. And he said that the gun went off. Uh, he said variously that that Garda Horkin had fired it or that it had just gone off or that maybe he had fired it. But in any event, the gun went off. It's very likely probable from the pathology evidence that uh, at that point, Garda Horkin had already suffered the injury that would kill him because he had been hit from a distance of less than 30 centimetres. That was the evidence of uh, state pathologist Linda Mulligan. That bullet that hit him from that close range did um, massive internal damage and uh, would, uh, would have killed him on its own without all the rest of the gunshots that were ultimately fired by Stephen Silver. So anyway, that, the gun had gone off at that stage. Stephen said that he felt Garda Horkin falling. He hit him on the head with the butt of the gun and he emptied that gun. So there were 11 shots fired and Garda Horkin suffered massive injuries as a result of those gunshots and he died. He succumbed to those injuries at the scene, in fact. Coming up, a difficult decision for the jury and the families react to Silver's conviction. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, and as you say, last week, Stephen Silver was found guilty of the capital murder of Gartha Horkin. Um, even though Silver had pleaded manslaughter by reason of diminished mon- responsibility and the jury also had a third option of considering a regular murder charge, which sounds like a terrible poor choice of words, but uh, it, it's different to capital murder. And he was tried twice and it took the jury just under nine hours to find him guilty of capital murder. But that was his second time being tried. So last November, after hearing the state's and the defence's case, a jury failed to reach a verdict and the whole process had to begin again. So what changed between the first and the second trials? So there was one major difference between the second trial and the first trial in that at the second trial, when Stephen Silver was asked at the very start of the trial in front of the jury to enter a plea, he said not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. But he didn't add what he had added in the first trial, which was that he was not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility. And that is diminished responsibility as a result of a mental disorder. Now, the reason it would appear that he didn't enter that that plea in regard to diminished responsibility at his second trial is because he was doing something that is often referred to by lawyers as riding two horses, whereby he was also running a defence of partial self-defense. So what he was essentially saying to the jury is, look, I'm putting forward this idea of that I should be found not guilty of murder by reason of diminished responsibility due to my mental disorder. But if you don't accept that, I'm also running this defense of um, that I believed at the time that I was acting in self-defense when I shot Garda Horkin. But I'm accepting that the force that I used was unreasonable, uh, that it was an unnecessary and unreasonable amount of force to use in the circumstances in which I found myself. But I genuinely believed that I was acting in self-defense at the time. That's what the partial defense of self-defense is. So the jury was essentially left with both of those uh, defenses, which wasn't something that happened in the first trial. In the first trial, this defense was run on more simple terms. It was simply that he was saying that he was not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. So just to be clear, because he didn't ex- explicitly say it was manslaughter due to diminished responsibility. That left it open to the jury to consider two possible reasons to convict him of manslaughter. One being diminished responsibility, the other being self-defence because he thought rightly or wrongly that Gartha Horkin was going to hurt him. As Justice Tony Hunt has said said a number of times in the Central Criminal Court where defence teams uh, argue two cases at the same time, he says if you ride two horses, you're more likely to fall down in between the two of them. Now, in this case, I think it's also worth noting that, you know, the circumstances of how Garda Hawken died, by the time Stephen Silver discharged the final bullets into Garda Hawken, he had already suffered one um, shotgun injury from up close, from less than 30 centimetres was the pathologist's evidence. Um, that injury had uh, done huge internal damage and would have led to his death anyway. And then Stephen Silver, during that grappling, had, uh, after the discharge of that, that bullet or that 
after that discharge, Stephen Silver then struck Garda Horkin on the side of the head with the butt of the gun, put distance between himself and Garda Horkin, and continued to fire that bullet, that gun, until all of the bullets were out of it. It was 11 shots in total. So it would be difficult to imagine how a person could believe that they were acting in self-defense in those circumstances. But that's what Stephen Silver essentially was arguing during that second trial. And that's something that was not argued during his first trial. Do we know whose idea it was to change the strategy, Owen? No, and of course, no, lawyers are not going to speak to me about things like that. I, it, and ultimately, it is, of course, Stephen Silver's job He's the person who instructs his counsel and, and ultimately it comes down to him. He is the person who decides how his case will be run um, and what strategies will be used. So, but I mean, that's as much as we know. I, I certainly can't say, but it was certainly, it's a notable difference between the two trials. And um, I think it is wor- worth noting that there was that difference and that the jury in the first trial was unable to come to a verdict, unable to come to an agreement. Whereas in the second trial, the decision was taken reasonably quickly. It was, I think, just less than nine hours, which for a murder trial of that length and duration and where there are so many verdicts, potential verdicts for the jury to consider and so much evidence for the jury to consider was a relatively fast, um, unanimous verdict for them to come back with. And Stephen Silver took the stand, which is an unusual thing to do because the defence doesn't have to. It's up to the state to, to prove that the defendant is guilty. He did. He took the stand in both trials. In, in his evidence to the jury, he certainly came across as much more measured and much more controlled because the jury at that point had seen his interviews with Gardy in the immediate aftermath of the shooting of Garda Horkin. And in those interviews, uh, his behaviour, even by his own admission, was was disgusting. You know, he, he spoke in very offensive terms about Garda Horkin, um, about Garda Horkin's ability as a detective, as about him as a person. His his behaviour was also, I suppose you could say, erratic or bizarre during those interviews. He did things like he would stuff tissue paper up his nose and then he put it in his mouth and then he spat it out on the ground. He he would take his shoes off and he was putting his toes in his mouth. But he did apologise for all that when he got into the box. He came across as a much more measured person and a much more, you know, much more in control of his behaviour and his emotions. And on that, Owen, his behaviour in the Garda station was very strange. You wrote that he had urinated in his cell he had taken his clothes off and there was a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you might let me know, which <laughs> correct me on which one it was, that was consulted. And, and, and that person said that that was very strange behaviour and it sounded like he was in a manic phase of bipolar disorder. Whereas there were other medical experts that gave evidence to say that, no, this, this was his personality. It, it wasn't the mental illness playing a part. The person you were referring to there who saw him in the cell and thought that there was something wrong was actually an ordinary GP who had some history of working with psychiatric patients. And he did say that that the behaviour, he seemed to be out of touch with reality was one of the comments that he made. Uh, and this was in, in the context that he seemed to believe that he was going to be released later that evening, that, you know, nothing serious had happened. He, he just didn't seem to grasp the gravity of what he had done and what he was involved in. But... There was a psychiatrist also who was called to check to see whether or not Stephen Silver was fit to be interviewed. That's this is a fairly normal procedure when Gardy arrests somebody, especially on a serious charge like this. And that man was Dr. Will Montero. And Dr. Montero's evidence was that he didn't find any evidence 
to suggest that he, first of all, that he shouldn't be fit, that he wasn't fit to be interviewed. But he didn't find any evidence that he was going through some sort of a a serious relapse. You know, he he found that his behaviour was, quote unquote, normal in terms of that he was uh, goal driven. He was directed. He was able to understand what was going on. He was able to make good eye contact. His speech was within normal limits. So Dr. Montero's evidence was that he couldn't really see any evidence that this person, first of all, wasn't fit to be interviewed or that he was going through any very serious relapse of a mental disorder. How are we to understand the situation when two experts, psychiatrists, for example, give totally opposing views on a perpetrator's mental health and the outcome hinging on which one is believed? I mean, it is very difficult and ultimately it comes down to the jury to decide, as as was said by the judges in both trials, these are trials by jury, not trials by experts. So the jury really has to make a decision as to which expert they find to be more compelling. Now, in this case, the expert evidence, the true expert evidence was given by Dr. Brenda Wright and Professor Harry Kennedy. Dr. Brenda Wright was called by the defence. Now, she is the currently the director of the Central Mental, Mental Hospital. Professor Kennedy was a previous director of the Central Mental Hospital. They're both very eminent psychiatrists. They're, the evidence that they gave, both of them, was very compelling and it would have been very difficult, I imagine, for a jury really to decide between the two of them. But it should be noted that where a person claims... Um, insanity or claims diminished responsibility they do have to prove it themselves it's not up to the prosecution to disprove it it is the one case where the the onus or the burden of proof shifts from the prosecution to the defense okay the evidence of dr wright was she found that the behavior that he was displaying in the garda station and from what she knew about his behaviour leading up to that point from speaking to members of his family who had spoken to him, including his sister, who was very concerned for his mental health in the day, in the 24 hours before this happened, because she spoke to him over the phone and she noted things that she said were red flags um, down through the years that meant that he needed to go in for some respite. She had actually said that to her mother following a conversation she had with Stephen Silver while Stephen was still in Dublin. She, she said that those red flags were there by, at that stage and she knew he was unwell and that he needed some help. And that was their plan was that as soon as he got home, they were going to take him in to get the help that they felt he needed. Uh, so Brenda Rice, taking that into account, taking into account the behaviour that he displayed in the Garda station, his history of mental illness and so on, she said that this was, he was relapsing into bipolar disorder and she found that his culpability was substantially diminished by that or at least that he qualified for that finding under the act I think was her evidence. The evidence of Professor Harry Kennedy was very different to that given by uh, Brenda Wright. He said that what Stephen Silver did was down to his personality and his behaviour was down to personality and he said that Stephen Silver had this uh, what he called learned impunity and the reason that his behaviour became more and more erratic and aggressive in the Garda station was because uh, he expected to be released that on previous occasions when he had behaved badly causing people to call the Gardaí um, to to resolve matters what had happened to him was that he would be um, taken into custody he would be brought to a psychiatric unit and he would be treated in hospital and that would be the end of it there would be no criminal charges brought and he said that Stephen Silver expected that to be the pattern of events in this case as well and became more and more aggressive and angry when that wasn't happening and when he wasn't getting his way and he said that it was that learned impunity that explained his what would seem fairly erratic behaviour from the outside and in the end the jury did 
reach a unanimous verdict on capital murder. So sentencing is in April. What will happen there? We, we already know what the term is for capital murder. It's 40 years, right? The minimum time served to be 40 years. He will be entitled to ordinary remission, which is 25% of your sentence. So he will be allowed to apply for parole after 30 years. But that obviously is a, a very long way away. But that is the earliest time that he will be allowed to apply for parole. In 2020, President Higgins led the tributes to Gartha Colum Horkin. He's somebody who has given uh, more than 20 years service to the keeping of peace uh, in the interests of all of the people. So the death of a Gartha is a blow to the community and every member in it. At the sentencing hearing, we expect to hear from members of Gartha Horkin's family who will talk about him, type of person he was, and the effect that his death has had on the family and on that community. Um, and on Gardaí in general, I suppose, as well, it's something to remember that I think it was four members of the same class that Garda Horkin was in have all uh, been killed in the line of duty. Wow. So it's, you know, it's a poignant day too for members of Garda Shikana. He had many friends in the force. I have spoken to Garda, a number of whom had no involvement in the case, but they were very eager to say, you know, that they knew Brendan, that they had met him over the years and that he was a gentleman and a truly nice man. Um, so I suppose it's important that he is remembered at that sentencing hearing as well, because it does happen in trials that the, de- the, the deceased person is kind of a background issue. And their lives are a background issue because the issue being considered is the guilt or otherwise of the accused person. So um, I think that that will be an important part of that sentencing hearing too. Yes, absolutely. And both families did give a reaction outside court on the day of the verdict, didn't they? Yeah, his brother Brendan spoke briefly, talked about his brother as as a, as a gentleman. Um, his father was there as well. I think um, Gerda Horkin actually lived with his father at the time of his death. And we'll hear certainly a lot more from them come the time. And did Stephen Silver's family react? Yeah, well, I believe Marion Bruin at the back of the court mentioned, you know, after the verdict came in, said that he is sick, that he is a sick man. That was the evidence that she gave in the trial as well, was that she understood that he was sick and that he was suffering a relapse. That, um, you know, and like I said, she had actually even contacted her mother to, to tell her of that and they had made plans in respect of that. Um, they have, I, I believe, given maybe some interviews to newspapers as well, where they've said, you know, that he's not the person that he has been painted out to be and that he is, you know, she described him as a gentleman in her evidence before the jury, before the jury as well. So that, you know, there's more than one side to every person, I suppose. Of course, very difficult for both families. Obviously worse for Garth Horkin because they've lost him forever. Owen Reynolds, thank you very much for joining us. That's it for today. For full access to Irish Times journalism and all the breaking news from the courts, go to irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back in your feeds soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.